0: Okay, let's uh, grab our Bibles if you have them, and we're going to turn to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, and we're going to read from verse 21, just a few verses together. And as we dip into it, we recognize that this moment in the ministry of Jesus is one that contains so many lessons about Jesus, about his power and his presence, and also about the life that can be lived in connection with him. And as we begin to journey into this passage, it's also worth calling out that this moment is one that is recorded in more than one gospel. And so while we examine it in Mark, we're also going to, over the next couple of weeks, step into Matthew and Luke to help us along the way. And as we begin to read this, within these verses, we find two miracles that take place. Two miracles that describe two different people in two different situations connecting with Jesus for two completely different reasons, but yet both experiencing the same life-changing results. And what makes this passage of the gospel so amazing to read is the way that the writers transition our focus from the crowd to the synagogue leader, to the stigmatized and suffering woman. And we begin to make that same journey as we handle the passage together. And as we look at it, we're just looking to see what is God saying to us as a people and allowing this to speak a little bit into what God has already been saying to us as a church. Now, the passage, of course, opens with a really familiar scene. Jesus has once again traveled to the other side of the lake, and there is a crowd of people waiting for him. Mark says, when Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. As soon as Jesus lands on the shore, a crowd of people gather around him. Now, that's not an unusual sight. The presence of Jesus within a town, within a village, within a locality regularly drew a crowd. And in fact, he still does today. So what Mark is describing for us here is not an unusual sight. However, when Luke describes it to us, he adds a little bit more helpful detail. He says, when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. As Luke calls out the crowd to us, he describes two characteristics that mark this crowd of people, two characteristics that must have been noticeable and tangible enough for him to see them and to be able to describe them to us. And the first is this, the first is that it was an expectant crowd. We're told that the crowd were expecting him. This was an expecting crowd. Now, in the Collins Dictionary, the definition of expectation or to expect is this. It's to think or believe something will happen or someone will arrive. According to Luke, this crowd is carrying an air of expectation. So they think or believe that something is going to happen and someone is going to arrive. And according to the passage, that which they were expecting was him was Jesus. They gathered on the shore expecting the arrival of Jesus. Their expectation was for his presence, and more than that, it was for his reality amongst them. And we can safely conclude that those gathered on the shore had this expectancy to see heaven on earth with the arrival of the presence of Jesus, because that is normally what happened whenever Jesus turned up. But what is furthermore interesting is the second characteristic of the crowd, which is undoubtedly linked to the first. And the second dynamic that this crowd carried was that this gathering of people was welcoming. It says a crowd welcomed him. This crowd of people gathering on the shore carried two dynamics. They carry an expectancy of Jesus and they carry a welcome for Jesus. And these two dynamics are linked. A crowd welcomed him for they were all expecting him. The expectancy of the people is linked to the welcome of the people. In fact, the expectancy of the crowd fueled the welcome of Jesus. Permit me to ask some questions this morning. Are we an expectant people? Do we gather like this crowd does? Do we gather with expectancy around the presence of Jesus? Do we gather expectant to see heaven on earth with the arrival of his presence amongst us? Every week we take time, every week intentionally we pause within our worship and as an expression and a a flow out of our worship or within our worship we take time to welcome his presence. Do we expect heaven on earth with the arrival of His presence amongst us. Does our welcome of Jesus in our worship, in our expression, in our mindset, in our hearts, in our approach, does our welcome reflect our expectation? Realize that for some of us, we we gather in this moment and we are fully expectant. For heaven on earth and Jesus to do wonderful things. And we reflect that in our posture and our approach. But I realize that for some of us, that's not always the case. When routinely, week in and week out, we gather in this way, we sit in these seats, we follow the same similar format. I mean, we're not religious, but we have a format. Have we lost our expectancy of Jesus? Do we still gather as a people with an expectancy of finding heaven on earth with the arrival of his presence? Because our expectancy of Jesus will be reflected in our welcome of him. And that's a challenge to us today. Our expectancy of him will be reflected in our welcome for him. God challenges on that, but believe it or not, that's not actually what we're focusing on today. We press on into the passage and our focus quickly shifts from the expectant welcoming crowd to the earnest plea of one man called Jairus. Suddenly we follow the narrative and the sequence of these events and as we do we are brought into a story within a story. We are swept, as it were, from the expectancy of the crowd to the earnest petition of this man called Jairus, and we are told of what is going on in his world, and what it is that he's facing, and the burden that he is carrying. And here is the wonder of the Gospels. One minute, Mark has us focused on a crowd of people, and the culture that they're carrying, and the culture that they're creating, and then the next, we are submerged into the world of just one guy, Jairus. We move from the crowd to the crisis that is unfolding in his home and unfolding within his family. And the challenging and interesting point here is that the gospels almost suggest to us that Jairus was part of the crowd waiting on the shore with the expectancy to welcome Jesus. So within this crowd, and we can picture the hustle and the bustle and the excitement, and within this crowd of excited people was one man with the weight of the world on his shoulders. Within this eager gathering of people, eager to be in the presence of Jesus, was one man carrying the weight of his crisis. And I guess this is a timely reminder that each and every day, each and every one of us step into the crowd of people doing life. As we go to work, as we go to uni, as we go to college, as we sit in the bus, as we walk down the street, every day we step from our own individual secluded worlds into the hustle and the bustle of the crowd, and whether by choice or not, we journey alongside other people, people that are known to us, people that are complete strangers to us. But each and every person that we pass in the daily journey of life, they have their own individual story within the bigger story of life. To us, they may just be one of a crowd, a nameless face on the bus, another body standing at the school gate, a colleague sitting at a desk across the room, just another person, just a, n, other, sharing the same space as us, just another body somewhere along the road, the other side of the church from us. But each person has a story a story of what it is that they're facing, a story of what it is that's going on in their lives. They have their story within the bigger story of the moment that we share. And Jesus here, he arrives and is greeted by the crowd as his focus shifts from the welcoming crowd to the weight of one man's crisis. Could it be that this passage as we follow it shows us the perspective of Jesus? See, we turn up on a Sunday And we step out day to day into the hustle and the bustle of life and we see a crowd and we see passing traffic, other bodies on the periphery of our vision, other bodies on the periphery of our world just passing by. But what Jesus sees is individual stories. He sees the personal journeys. He sees the very real struggles of each and every person and the contents of each and every soul. Now, wherever Jesus went, there was a crowd that followed him. But when Jesus surveyed the crowd, he didn't just see masses of people. He saw individuals. And more than that, he saw individual stories, individual battles. He saw worries and anxieties. He saw stresses and strains. He saw the contents, challenges, and celebrations of each individual world. He saw their individual story within the overall narrative. Friend, Be encouraged today. As you sit here in the presence of God, as you sit here in the presence of this crowd, you might have stepped out of routine, out into routine today and joined the crowd, eager to welcome the presence of Jesus. And life for you might be going really well. The storyline in your life right now might be a really positive one, packed with joy and celebrations. And if it is, I pray it continues. But you might have stepped out today carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders. You might be in this moment of people right now, feeling unseen. Putting putting a brave face on an inner turmoil. Carrying pain and struggles as crisis begins to dictate the storyline that you're living. You might be tired exhausted from what it is you've had to carry and from the stuff that you have just been through. You might be feeling numb because of the battering that you've just taken. Friend, take heart. As Jesus walks amongst us today, he doesn't stand aloof and just look down and see how many people have turned up and look down and see a crowd. He is here and he sees every single one of our individual worlds. He sees what our souls are carrying. He sees the journey that we have to make. He sees you this morning. And if He sees, then that means He knows. He sees you, He knows your journey. And much like he shifted his focus from the crowd to minister to the earnest petition of one, so he is willing to move amongst us together as a people and minister to us corporately as an entity, but also he is willing to respond and minister to each and every earnest heart that reaches out to him and opens up who they are to him. Take heart, friend. Jesus sees you right now. Here's the other interesting thing that this passage teaches us. As Jesus journeys with Jairus to minister within his circumstances, as he makes that journey, actually the overall narrative of this moment is changed. This story could have unfolded quite differently in the passage. We could have read of Jesus arriving on the shore and spending time on the shoreline teaching the multitude. Or ministering to the need. This could have read as how demons were coming out with shrieks on the shore. It could have read as how blind eyes were opened. And people were getting up off of their mats. Or, or suddenly miracles were unfolding right there on the shoreline. But that's not the narrative that we read. That's not the way the story unfolds. Jairus' request of Jesus changes the narrative. It alters the story And as Jesus journeys to change one person's story, the overall narrative of that moment is completely transformed. And this is what Jesus does. He changes individual stories in order to transform the overall narrative. He calls 12 disciples, he calls 12 individuals, and he transformed their individual stories and their individual life journeys. And by doing so, he changed the overall narrative of this world because you're sitting there and I'm standing here thousands of years later because 12 guys' personal life stories were impacted by the reality of Christ. And the Gospels are full of stories of Jesus healing people and setting people free and releasing miracles into the worlds and bringing difference and bringing change. And as he transformed their individual stories, he in turn transformed the entire narrative of God in a human life because we read them in the pages of our scripture. And as we read of how their individual stories were transformed, it impacts what we believe for him to do for us. It informs and educates us as to what we can come and ask Him to do and what we should expect Him to do. It shapes our faith. So this challenges us. It inspires us. It moves us even to just simply open up our lives and invite God to change our individual stories so that we can be part of the narrative of God on planet Earth. Because this is what God does. He he tells His story through our lives. We are the living chapters of his narrative. We are the pages on which he writes his story. And in fact, we are the vehicle through which he speaks out his story and announces his story to the world around us. He changes us to transform the narrative of the world around us. But as we take that thought process and as we examine this passage, this passage actually begins to teach us the importance of connecting with people's individual stories. See, the church of Jesus Christ today has got it all mixed up when it thinks that it's our job to preach at people and force the gospel down people's throats and and in doing so call it the ministry of Christ. Because the job of the church is to connect with individuals and connect with individual stories and specifically our job is to connect the ministry of Jesus to the contents, challenges, and celebrations of people's worlds. Her job is to connect with the nameless face on the bus, the person standing at the school gate, the individual sitting at, de- at the desk at work or, or union to connect the individual story of that life to the overall narrative of God. And this is exactly what happened with Jairus. The focus of Jesus moves from the crowd to the individual story of Jairus. And here is Jairus' story. Jairus is a synagogue leader. He has a daughter and his daughter is sick and dying. Luke records the moment as follows. He says, Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. Jairus' daughter is sick. In fact, she's so poorly that she's dying. And to add to this, Luke tells us that She is his only daughter, and she's only 12 years old. When we read that, our hearts are immediately invested, aren't they, in what's going on? This girl is his little princess. She would have been his entire world. And at 12 years old, she is at the stage where she is blossoming into a young woman. And with that comes the blossoming of her hopes and her dreams and her aspirations for her life's journey. But she's sick and she's dying. So Jairus' whole world has been turned upside down. So he seeks to connect with Jesus. And this whole passage is all about connection. It's all about what it's like to connect with Jesus. And look at how Jairus connects with Christ. What we read is we're introduced to Jairus as a desperate man. It's his desperation that has brought him to connect with Christ. He is desperate for his daughter to be well. He is desperate for her to be healed. He is desperate for her to live, and such desperation drives his connection with Jesus. It's his desperation that drives him to get the attention of Jesus. It's his desperation that drives him to be heard above the crowd before Jesus. It's his desperation that sees him push through the crowd of people, push through everything that's in his way to connect with Jesus. And he pushes through, and he throws himself at Jesus' feet. See, desperate times call for desperate measures. And this man's desperation saw him change his position. And this is the focus for the remainder of our time together. We examine the position of Jairus and what that speaks to us as individuals, but speaks to us about our position as a church. Desperation from this man saw change within this man. And the change is seen in his position. He changed his position in four ways. So you'll have a rough idea when we're near the end. (laughs) The first way he changed his position was that he changed his position on Jesus. Now, the fact that we cannot overlook in all of this is that Jairus is a synagogue leader. Synagogues were places of worship within Jewish communities. They were where Jews gathered for prayers, the reading of Scripture, and the teaching for Scripture. And the ruler of the synagogue was a very important person. He himself did not necessarily preach or teach, but it was his job to appoint those who would. And it was his job to organize who would read and who would pray and who would teach. And as well as organizing, his job was also to supervise, to make sure that nothing untoward, nothing unfitting, nothing, un- nothing heretical took place within the gatherings in his synagogue. Jairus was the leader of his synagogue. And what we've just outlined there, well, that was his job description which meant that he would have been a man who was quite orthodox and quite conservative in his faith and quite orthodox and conservative in his approach to faith. And as we begin to read the story of Jesus as it unfolds and we read through the Gospels, we begin to see that gradually the doors of the synagogues began to close to Jesus. Jesus' teaching and insight quickly turned from stimulating amazement with his listeners to causing offence. And there were a couple of occasions where we read of angry men actually driving him out of their synagogues, wanting to kill him because of his teaching. Jesus, therefore, was not the most popular in the synagogue circuit. And he was regarded by Orthodox Jews as a heretic and as a lawbreaker. Jairus was an Orthodox Jew. He would have had to have been. And as a synagogue leader, you could bet that Jairus would have formed and he would have taken a position on Jesus. And most likely he would have been watching for him and his followers in case they turned up in his synagogue. In fact, he more than likely would have warned his synagogue members against this guy's teaching and his heresy. But yet here he is changing his position on Jesus. He comes to him out of desperation. He begs him to step in and to manifest his power. And the only thing that we can see as the catalyst for this change was his desperation. Desperation changed his view of Jesus. This man moved from opposing Jesus to embracing him. He moved from keeping his distance to getting up close and personal. He moved from having a distorted view of Jesus to now possessing a very clear view of Jesus. In fact, this moment would forever change his position on Christ. This man would live from this moment in Scripture onwards with a transformed understanding of who Jesus is and his character and his nature. You see, an appetite and a hunger to see Jesus manifest in our worlds will cause us to change our position for a clearer view of him. It will move us. It will move us closer to him, to see him more clearly, and as a result, see a transformed understanding of who he is and what he's like and his character and his nature. Now, as we pause and we think about that, permit me to ask some personal questions. Do you recognize that perhaps there's come a distance in your relationship with Jesus? Has your view of him perhaps become a little bit distorted? due to the stuff and the things that you've been through? Has it become a little bit distorted due to the culture that you're carrying or even the culture that you've been raised to carry or the worldview that you operate with? Do you desire to see Him manifest in your world? And if the answer is yes, let that desire and that drive drive you to change your position to connect with him. Let it move you to come closer to get a clearer view of him. And in doing so, as you get a fresh vision of him, let it deepen your understanding of his character and his power. Sometimes we need to change our position on Jesus Sometimes we need to lay stuff down that we've been carrying, that we've inherited or that has been shaped by the stuff that we're going through. Sometimes the biggest thing that we need to do is just get a clearer vision of him. This man changed his position on Jesus, but he also changed his position physically. The passage tells us that when Jairus approached Jesus, there was a literal change of position. He fell At the feet of Jesus. Now, the positioning of oneself at the feet of another is a position of respect. It's a position of honor. It is to honor and revere and worship the person at whose feet you've fallen. But the falling at feet is also a position of humility. It's to put yourself in a lower position and call out submission and to acknowledge that the person at whose feet you have fallen is superior to you, is your superior. Jairus' change in his outward position actually demonstrated the change in his inward position. His actions reflected his heart. By changing his, his outward position and his behavior before Jesus, his actions were actually communicating the contents of his heart towards Jesus. Yeah, now again, let me be direct if that's okay. Do your actions communicate the context, contents of your heart towards Christ? This is something that we can struggle with in Scottish culture because we like to think that we're hard and we've got it all together. But you know what? There are times in which our inward appetite and hunger for God needs to have an outward expression. Does your behavior and actions before Jesus communicate your heart towards Jesus? does your physical stance and approach in worship reflect your heart in that moment? Does your physical stance and approach in prayer reflect the deep desire and position within your heart? And that's challenging because sometimes our stance and behavior in worship reflects our opinion of worship. But does it reflect our heart of worship There are times in our approach to God in which the inward expression towards God needs to have a physical outlet. Why? Why does it need to have a physical outlet? It needs to have a physical outlet because engaging with God or connecting with God should engage the whole person, body, soul, and spirit. That the trinity of who we are, body, soul, and spirit pursues the trinity of who he is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But yet, in our Scottish church culture, we find it acceptable at times to bring our minds into an expression. And if it's really necessary, we'll bring our spirits into an expression. But very often, it feels like we've left our bodies at the front door. This man, Jairus, he fell at Jesus' feet. He engaged all that he had in the pursuit of Christ. And here's the thing he's the synagogue ruler he would have been known in that community. Yeah. He would have been known within the expectant crowd that was welcoming Jesus on the shore because he was their synagogue ruler. He would have been known as the conservative authoritarian that his role insisted that he be, one that held it all together and one whose job was to make sure everyone else held it all together. But yet here he is, undone at the feet of Christ. His desperation, his appetite for Jesus to manifest in his world pushed him past his inhibitions, pushed him past his concern about the opinion of others and he became undone at the feet of Jesus. Our hunger and our appetite for Christ to turn up in our lives and to manifest in our circumstances should drive us to engage all that we've got in our connections with him. We've got to push past the boundaries of inhibition and move beyond the concern of other people's opinions. We need to come in such a way that permits us to be undone and free in our expression that Jesus feeds. And you know, we come in these moments and we talk about this and we're like, come on, let's press in and come on, let's get undone. And it's not because we want a good sound of worship. It's not because we want it to be loud. It's not because we want it to be noisy. It's because we need to engage all that we've got in the pursuit of all of him. And this isn't just about, this is good preaching and this is good rhetoric to say, let's push past inhibitions and let's get wild. It's not about that. It's about allowing the attitude of the heart to be communicated in our expressions. This man changed his position in Jesus. He changed his position physically and he changed his position emotionally. Notice the request of Jairus. My little daughter is dying. As you read this, you can hear the emotion in Jairus' voice. My little daughter is dying. There is affection in the way that he describes his girl as his little daughter. She's not little. She's 12. But she will always be his little daughter. He is vulnerable in the presence of Christ. There is no pretense here. There's no authority being conveyed here. This is just raw emotion. Raw motion that I reckon probably would have been seen as well as being heard. And what is clear is the position that he took from this statement. Notice the position from which he makes his request. He doesn't come and ask Jesus out of a position as synagogue leader. He doesn't come as a pillar of the community. He doesn't come as an authority figure or a recognized religious official. He, Jesus i the synagogue leader. You might be familiar with my work. He doesn't come as that synagogue leader, pillar of the community, official, religious authority. He comes as a dad. He drops the labels. The labels of status, the labels of ministry, the title attached to his position. And he comes and petitions Jesus based on who he is as a human being. In fact, he comes and he petitions Jesus out of the most basic, yet most profound identity. He comes as a dad. This is the core identity of who he is. And here is the key to seeing Jesus manifest in our world. It's to learn to approach him and connect with him, not due to our positions, not due to our perceived authority and our self-proclaimed anointings, not connecting through our labels and our titles and ministry, but connecting out of our core identity as sons and daughters of God. Understanding that who we are approaching is our Father, is our Daddy God. It's the one that loves us unconditionally. The one that will always see us as his children. See, a hunger and appetite to see Jesus manifest in our worlds in transformative ways will drive us to the position of being vulnerable. It will drive us to the position of being emotionally open before him, discovering and connecting with our core identity as sons and daughters of God who are loved by the fierce, insatiable love of the Father. And such a drive involves us loving upon him and being loved by him. We have to understand what sees change happen is not when we come and decree and declare, although there's times when we need to do that. Seeing transformation in our world is not coming and binding and loosing, although there's times when we need to do that. It's not coming and making declarations, although there's times when we need to do that. The greatest way that we can see transformation in our worlds and in our lives is when we simply come as sons and daughters. And love him. And be loved by him. That's when change happens. It's time to drop the labels. The pretense. The titles. The self-proclaimed anointings and ministries and authorities. It's time to drop the altogether conservative stiff upper lip. And pursue the radical reckless love of our unconditional father. Because that's when we see heaven move to transform the earth. Heaven moves the most and that position of loving and being loved by the Father. This man changed his position on Jesus. He changed physically, he changed his position emotionally, and he changed his position spiritually. If we can get the next slide there. As Jairus approaches Jesus, what we have to recognize is that he makes a declaration of his faith. He says, Please come and put your hands on her so that she'll be healed and live. This statement actually reveals what Jairus believes. He believes that if Jesus just places his hands on his daughter, she will be healed and live. Here then is a declaration of his faith. Now, what we've got to recognize is that here is a conservative Orthodox Jew requesting and seeking the miraculous and requesting and seeking the supernatural. And a hunger and an appetite to see Jesus manifest in our worlds will involve a desire to see the miraculous and the supernatural. If you really want to hang about with him, you've got to be ready for the miraculous and the supernatural. They tend to follow him wherever he goes. But what I love about this statement is that Jairus gets it, but actually... He doesn't get it. He gets it, yet he doesn't get it. His request is put your hands on her and she'll be healed. But it wasn't the hands of Jesus that brought healing, (laughs) it was the person in the presence of Jesus. And in fact, in this moment, it wasn't the hands of Jesus that brought healing to his girl and raised her from the dead. It was the very person and presence and the word and the authority of Christ. His request is made from a place of imperfect faith. But yet Jesus responded anyway. I love the fact that Jesus doesn't require us to have perfect faith. He doesn't require us to have it all theologically worked out and perfectly pigeonholed before he'll respond to our prayers with the supernatural. You don't have to have perfect faith to see Jesus respond with the supernatural. How liberating is that? You don't have to have it all theologically worked out, all perfectly pigeonholed, all memorized, all the I's dotted and the T's crossed. You just have to come to that place of loving and being loved. Amen. Yeah. Jesus responded with supernatural miracles and he responded with supernatural miracles because of who he is, not because of who we are and most certainly not because of the way that we ask. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe we need to get that Because there is that rhetoric going about and it's sexy Christianity and it's glitzy in which it's like, if you proclaim this way and if you announce this way and if you decree and declare this way and if you take this and you take this format and you speak in this way, then that's going to unlock angels that are going to blow their trumpets and the trumpets are going to cause the Holy Spirit to do stuff and all this kind of stuff when the truth is, actually, it's not based on who we are, it's based on who he is not based on what we do or the way that we speak or the way that we approach. It's based on his heart towards us and the sovereignty of God. However, as we conclude, we see something quite important here. Jairus comes and he changes his position on Jesus. He changes his position physically, emotionally, spiritually in order to connect with Jesus. But notice why he's connecting with Christ. He's connecting with Christ so that Christ will connect with his daughter. He changes his approach to Christ so that Christ will approach his daughter. Ultimately, he connects with Jesus so that Jesus will connect with another. And and that, by definition, is what we call intercession. His desperation results in intercession. And a hunger and an appetite to see Jesus manifest in our world in transformative ways will result and has to involve intercession. And intercession is when we come close to connect with Jesus so that Jesus will connect with another. And suddenly we begin to learn what intercession looks like. And we drop this in and we build on it over the next couple of weeks because we said that one of the things that was imperative for seeing culture change and fruitfulness was embracing intercession. And we spoke about how God was beginning to grow and to stretch and to strengthen our intercession muscle. So we gather around the word and we allow him to speak into that. We begin to learn what intercession looks like. Intercession looks like connecting individual stories to the narrative of God. Our role in intercession is to discern and understand the storyline that is in operation in someone's life. And to bring that and request that the narrative of God transforms that storyline. If that person is struggling with sickness, well, we understand the narrative of God is healing. So we're going to ask God to change that narrative. If the person's struggling with addiction, then we understand that the narrative of God is freedom. So we're going to ask God to change that storyline. If the narrative, if the storyline of that individual's life is spiritual oppression and difficulty, but we understand that the narrative of God is breakthrough and deliverance, then we're going to come and we're going to ask God to transform the storyline with his narrative. If the storyline over our town, over our village, over our city, over our family is spiritual darkness and curse and difficulty, but we know that the narrative of God is blessing and prosperity and favor and flourishing and light invading the darkness, then we're going to come in a place of intercession and we're going to intercede and pray for the narrative of God to bring transformation. But you know what? It's more than just words. Because when we come and we take that stance, then one of the things we need to realize is that quite often God uses us to be the answer to the prayer, which means that we need to start releasing and coming into our towns and our villages and our cities and our communities and our families and bringing the blessing that we're praying for. We need to come to people and start praying for healing that we're praying for. We need to come and start being part of the journey of freedom that we're praying for. Intercession is all about connecting individual stories to the overall narrative of God. But as well as that, intercession looks like changing your position to get a clear view of Him. It looks like changing your position to get closer to God in order to get a clearer perspective of Him that transforms our understanding of Him and drives the way that we petition Him. It's about allowing your view of Jesus and what you see and know of Him to fuel your prayer for other people and to determine what you believe for Him to do. The first step always has to be in the place of intercession. It's not just to come and just blindly ask, although he will always listen. But it's actually to come and remove the blindness by coming. And the first thing we ask is, Jesus, can you show us what you're doing in this situation? In this person's life, in this circumstance, in our church, in our community, in this city. Can you show us what it is that you're doing? We want to get a vision and a view of you. And then we begin to pray what we see him doing. That is the way that we ask in accordance with his will. That is the way that we see his will being done and his kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. One of the first things we need to do is come and say, Jesus, would you show me what it is you're doing? We need to get a clearer view of him. Intercession also looks like changing your position physically. It involves engaging your whole self, body, body, soul, and spirit in the petitioning of God on behalf of other people. It's pushing past the boundaries of inhibition. It's pushing past the boundaries of other people's opinions and being undone at the feet of Jesus. It's giving him all that you've got to the task of seeing him move in other people's worlds. Do you know what? We need to get to that place where we engage all that we've got. That our prayer meetings aren't just about coming, sitting in circles and adopting the shampoo position. You know, where you sit like that. And prayer ping pong happens. Don't get me wrong, God answers that. There's value in that. Intercession is about coming and saying, God, I give all of me to the task of interceding in this situation. I give all that I have to the task of serving you in intercession to what you want me to pray about. I'm going to engage my body, I'm going to engage my spirit, and I'm going to engage my emotions, and I surrender them all to you right now. Holy Spirit, teach me to pray. Intercession involves changing your position physically, and intercession involves changing your position emotionally. It's about being vulnerable in the presence of Jesus. It's about petitioning his fatherhood Coming deep into his presence out of our identity as sons and daughters. Using our identity and right as a child of God to come close to him. But in that position of intimacy and proximity, not coming and asking for ourselves, but coming and asking for others. That's intercession in a nutshell. It's about boldly approaching the throne of grace to which we are boldly permitted to come. But instead of coming and saying, fill me, give me the latest anointing, I want the latest breakthrough, it's actually coming and saying, God, in this place where your love is cascading in my life and I'm coming and loving upon you, now I lift my eyes to the task of praying for others. involves gauging all that we are coming deep into his presence, asking him to move in the world of other people. And lastly, intercession looks like changing our position spiritually, interceding for miracles, interceding for supernatural manifestation, petitioning God for change. And it's about coming with imperfect faith and realizing that our petitions aren't limited to what we have faith to ask for, but what God has the ability to do. And that changes things quite dramatically. It's about coming and not praying what we have the faith to ask for. And sometimes we get too frightened to pray big, bold prayers in case it doesn't happen. And then we look foolish and then we feel daft. Intercession is not about what we have faith to ask for. It's about what he has the ability to do. And our God is able to do exceedingly and abundantly more than we can ever ask or we can ever begin to imagine and comprehend. So we need to come and get a clear vision of him. What is it that you're doing? Because I'm not going to let my prayers, our prayers, our intercession to be limited by what we think you should be doing. But actually, we want to get a clear vision of what it is that you are doing. And we're going to start there as our starting point. We're going to believe that you are able to do what your word says you're able to do. Intercession involves connecting individual stories to the narrative of God. It involves changing our position for a clear view of Him. It involves changing our position physically. It involves changing our position emotionally. It involves changing our position spiritually. It involves giving all that we've got for the task of seeing His kingdom come. And his well been done. Glasgow, and I wonder if we could step into a moment of intercession together this morning. Would that be okay? Yes. Let's stand together, shall we, as the team come.